Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm with Valgood's member Valgood Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Yellow, yellow. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. I'm blue, double D, double die. Now, if there's a slight delay between our respective voices because we are social distancing and recording on Zoom, as we have been for the past few months, and we are getting out a little, seeing people in and about. We're just going into cinemas. Cinemas are back open. Chris, you went to the Ritz last night? Yeah, last night I saw Eight and a Half. I hadn't watched that in like six years. Seven, no, probably longer. Probably like eight, nine years. Yeah, you know, it's great. <laughs> it would have been funny if you hadn't seen it for eight and a half years. It's probably correct, actually, yeah. think of it. But yeah, it's a great film, isn't it? I last rewatched it when... it's one. Of, actually, it's one of my all-time favorite films. I last rewatched too, it when yeah. Birdman came out because it struck me just how similar they were in so many respects. They're definitely riffing on Eight and a Half in Birdman, but Eight and a Half is oh, so much a lot better. better. Yeah, a lot better. <laughs> no than question. I'm, I'm more of a La Dolce Vita fan, but... Also, outstanding. Yeah. Uh, Dolce Vita, Birdman riffs off a bit of La Dolce Vita too. Do you guys prefer Dolce, La Dolce Vita to Eight and a Half? I do. No, no, I prefer it in half. Eight and a half is my favorite. Then I'd say I've eaten alone. Yes, such a brilliant film. Beautiful. I've said before that my regret about this program that they're playing at the Ritz at the moment is that they don't have Ivaloni and Knights of Kiberia, which oh, are Knights two... of Kiberia, it's fantastic. And Those Satyricon's are... not playing, is it? Satyricon is playing. Good, okay, good. I think it's next week. But yeah, Ivaloni and Knights of Kiberia might be my favorites, along with Eight and a Half. But there's a new restoration of Knights of Kiberia that just premiered in the last year, I think, and was show... it's showing in American cinemas, like, or was right before COVID. So hopefully we will see that sometime soon. It strikes me as one of the things that might have been programmed in the classic section of Sydney Film Festival where to go ahead because it's a really high profile new restoration. Anyway, that's true. Fingers talking, crossed for Knights of Kiberia. Talking of American cinemas, last we were told that Tenet was indefinitely delayed. Now we have yes, been a... told of a new release schedule and Tenet is Australian. Did you hear about this? In September. September, the first oh, week okay. of September. No, really. I thought it was late August still. No, uh, August. Uh, this, uh, no, I think it's twenty sixth of August. No, but that's all other. It's they're they're stagnating, released into different countries, oh. which is not the US. So yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It reaches Australia, I think, first week of September. This time, I will hold my breath because I've been wrong so many times. It Let's could see happen. How this plays September out. September looks more likely. It, I think timeline wise, August still was pushing it. Yeah, look, I feel like this is a mistake. I feel like Warner Brothers need to just tell Chris Nolan to shut up and push it to 2021. I feel like this is going to lose a lot of money. Yeah, if you're a Nolan fan, there's plenty of great stuff he's released that's underrated that you can go back and watch. I actually haven't seen Insomnia, so I need to go back and catch that. What's the original as well? We can wait for the new Nolan. Yeah, but the thing about this tenant strategy is... Who actually wants to go out to the cinema in large numbers? Why is it so important to release the film now? Apparently, like the insider reporting in your trade magazines, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, etc., has always been that Nolan really cares about the viability of theaters and wants to keep them going. And he's worried that without a big release to bring some money to the theaters, they're going to go bankrupt and there'll be no more theatrical experience for when the COVID situation is dealt with. You don't Um, want any particular spikes linked to this or any other event imagine the, the, that's right imagine the bad pr if 
and some of the sessions that do by coincidence have crowds, which I'm sure will happen, that ends up being the cause of a spike. That's going to backfire and keep people away from cinemas for a lot longer, right? And Nolan being the darling of the masses, I'm pretty sure the public is pretty heavy. They have short-term memory. You can be a darling and a villain pretty quickly. <laughs> but then, look, it can prospectively release in jurisdictions where there is a much more mitigated concern, like in New Zealand or several jurisdictions where coronavirus, uh, there are zero cases. And there are countries where that is certainly the case. Mm. But and how much is... not the biggest cinema yes. audiences, but you can go ahead in that circumstance. Piracy is a big concern, but other regions where they will not be released, there'll be a bootleg copy available and then that will stop people from going and watching it. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. The piracy means that people are inevitably going to see this in the US for months in advance of their release there in pirated versions. Not people who really care about watching the film in the best quality way, but possibly a significant portion people. Actually, the US release is not that long after the Australian release in September. So it's, I think, only a week after. So it's mid-September for the US. Yeah, so they after delaying the movie because of COVID, they're releasing it in territories where suddenly we're seeing a big spike again. Is it really September when they're releasing it in the US? Yeah, I look at the variety schedule. So it's all the other regions where there is... I wouldn't go to a movie in the US right now. That's so stupid. Maybe US, no. Yeah, that like there is less of a chance, like New Zealand and stuff. It's late August, 26, 27. And then in other territories, it's September. It's not that long. Yeah, that's too soon to be releasing what's, at least on paper, a big crowd draw blockbuster in America. I really don't understand the thinking here. Something relevant. Okay, so Train to Busan made uh, $24 million in its opening weekend in Korea, right? This weekend, the sequel opened in Korean cinemas, where Korea's had a really good COVID response, and they made $13 million. So the okay, sequel hang had on. A... Uh, I'll, I'll issue a correction as of uh, accurate dates. In Australia, it'll be 27th of August. Yeah, that's what, that's what I thought. And yep. the US, it's 3rd of September. It's a week after. That's remarkable to me. That seems really stupid. Again, I've seen this delayed and changed so many times. I'm willing to wait to the day before to believe that it actually is going to be released. So actually, there's yeah. not much of a difference from like 26th of August till 3rd of September. It's literally it's a, a week. week. It's a major difference for the purposes of piracy. It's a Nolan film. People are going to want to see it. It's the new guy. Especially because... Yeah, especially because the marketing around this has been really about the like the J.J. Abrams mystery box approach. It's been trying to create intrigue and people are going to be able to go on Wikipedia and read everything that happens in the movie before it opens in the biggest market. But honestly, I think that's the one benefit because even after reading Wikipedia plot synopses, I did not understand normal movies until I saw this. No, no. So actually, I, I had to see Inception a few times, but... I, I get you. Yeah, hold on, hold on. But the Wikipedia people... synopsis actually do not make any sense. Though. Hold on, hold on. Do people Without actually think Inception was hard to understand? I'm not even trying no, to say, no, look no. how intellectual there, I am. Like for me, is, it was like they big... explain everything all the time. There is a big section it's of the audience too much who feels... explaining in Inception. It's too much explaining. That's right. Inception would have been way better if you didn't know what was going on. No, what I mean... dreamy mystery to, to, cl- it. to clarify, the second time was to establish, just in my mind, how many layers there were, but right. moreover, my view on the ending, which hasn't changed. But that's the thing, you dream. know. Everyone wanted, wanted a think piece around what did the ending mean. So there were like a thousand things. Yeah, it was, a, it was a hilarious time. I still remember okay. being in the cinema and seeing the top 12 and the big groan that comes up. Sorry for some I rooting the end of Inception. Okay, it's Inception spoilers. I, I need Inception. to. I need to reply to Chris. No, I called you Chris Nolan. 
No, I need to reply to the, <laughs> it's, it's a dream thing. If anything, I think it was a rare moment of poetry in Nolan's cinema. And the point is actually, it doesn't matter if it's a dream or not. I don't think even Nolan probably really knows. Oh, I agree completely, but it's still a dream. Maybe. The, two, like, the internal logic of the story. Otherwise, we would have seen Marianne Cotillard's body after she fell off the building and other things. Oh, maybe, maybe. I need to go back and rewatch it to, to know what you're talking about with this Marianne Cotillard just, thing, actually. What's our official verdict? Uh, is it was it a dream or not? No, that it's a dream. It's definitely I, a dream, guys. I would probably have this ten year old debate. If you held a gun to my head, I would say <laughs> probably not a dream, but could be a dream. But like I said, the takeaway is sort of that yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like the point is that he walks away from the spinning top. Like he's not worried about whether it's a dream or not. Like that, I think that was the bigger thing. See, that's still, I think, a very nuanced take than any other thing pieces that were deciphering it 10 years ago. To my mind, the editing and visual cues implied that it was a dream. Certainly got more pronounced the further you went down the levels, but it was still there in what was considered the base level compared we, to the visual language of any number of his other films and film more generally. So we have fair become, enough. We've become what we hate. Oh my God. No yeah. one has made us into this. So... <laughs> so to rewind the conversation a bit, I was talking about the box office gross of the new Train to Busan movie in Korea, right? The original made $24 million. The sequel was way more hyped. Korea's had a brilliant COVID response and it made $13 million, slightly more than half what the original movie made in its opening weekend, despite being a way more hyped up sequel. If this trend holds worldwide, Tenet's not going to make that much money. People are still just cautious. You know, this is probably the first attempt at releasing a blockbuster in theaters since COVID-19 hit. Do Absolutely. You, it's the first attempt. Like, do you yeah, think I mean, sorry, I meant that Train to Busan sequel. Train what, to what, Busan what's it called? Two. I think it's Train, Train to Busan, Busan 2. 2. No, no, it has, yeah. a, it has a name. I'm looking it up. Okay. For the Korean market, that was a blockbuster. So worldwide, that's yeah. probably the first attempt at releasing a blockbuster. What I'm thinking is that Tenet would be probably be re-released. Peninsula. Because... It's Train to Busan 2 that's Peninsula. That's right, yep. I think it was going to be just called Peninsula, but then the, the studio said it has to be trained to be signed to. Or basically, uh, just, you know, uh, taking that marketing dollars. We need nostalgia, people. We need, we need. Look, if it's a good sequel, that's fine. And it was a good original. So. Mm. But wow. yeah, I think that just shows that even, even when COVID's well handled, people are just cautious. So I, I think, think the Tenet thing's going to backfire. Tenet is probably going to re-release again next year to recover all the money it's lost. But so then like, it'll be away from the hype and the whole mystery thing. No, it'll be like, no, watch it again now without the pandemic. So you're stressed. Now, there'll be too many new movies to see in the case we can actually reopen cinemas. People want to see Milan and Fast and the Furious and No Time to Die. And what Marvel decides to do. It depends. I think no one really knows what's going to happen. There could be this big wave of all the movies getting released. I think studios will start to release their finished product if there's big demand. But on the other hand, what if... Studios start losing money and we have the return of... Return of mid-budget yeah. movies, which we Give, one thing. Which we discussed in a previous, I think the yeah. last episode. Given the lack of production going on, I think it would be way more wise to space things out. What's going to be at the Oscars? Even with the eligibility extended until February. And still, old guard, not the old guard. Yeah, even yeah. with the, um, not the old guard. Yeah, even with the eligibility extended till February, I don't feel like many or any Oscar bait movies are going to be finished. I don't think many released anyway. Chloe Zhao's no, You've Won Nomadland with Frances McDormand will be finished. That's one. Maybe a lot of Netflix releases. Maybe because that's... a bunch of random, a bunch of things just released in the January, February window. And remember, Oscars, to their discredit, which we discussed in the previous episode, have extended the window. If people, students were released, someone's being eligible, let them do the 12 month window as they would in any given year. It's favoring, as we discussed before, a particular type of film, particular type of studio, and that's pretty unfair. But that's what the Oscars always have been. They've never really been about quality 
or the, the best of the best. It's about favoring a certain type of film. So just, just know what you're doing when you're getting into the Oscars. It's fun to watch and enjoy and tally and make fun of, but just know what you're Don't getting. take it too seriously. Yeah, when the Green Book wins, it happens. Just don't lose your shit. But like the Green Book thing was barely the most egregious best picture win. That's true. like Crash um, one. I was about to was say horrible. that. Like Green Book, I think, is at least competent and entertaining. I get some enjoyment out of it. Crash is terrible. Dear God. Crash no, is, dated. is bad, Chris. Yeah, Crash is dated so badly in light of the current... Cra- Crash was badly dated in 04. Yeah, that, that's right. It was bad then, but watching it now, it's just like, how were these people that out of touch? Even, mo- even, Monsters, even Monsters Ball was just a bit... Monsters Ball didn't win Best well, Picture. It didn't, but it got Halle Berry the uh, yeah. Oscar, though. I never saw it. You uh, dodged your bullet. <laughs> okay. Um, so we should be clear. Um, we sort of considered not doing an episode this week, so we're a little bit scattershot. But uh, thanks for thanks for listening anyway. Yeah, no, yeah I, I, be... no, I, I think the Oscars and and the pandemic really galvanized us into discussing tenant. Thank you, tenant. Things that make me angry. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Chris Nolan, for actually uh, giving giving us content. Yeah, we, we, we could always fall, because we're film fanboys, we could always fall back at the Oscars of Christopher Nolan. Yeah, <laughs> there'll be stuff to say. You know, that, that's, that's the, the popular fanboys, bringing, bringing them to the yard. And, yeah. and, and don't forget out and Fellini. Clearly, we, we keep coming back to Fellini. One, Good reason. One, oh, Have you seen Roma, by the way? Roma? The Fellini's Roma? No. No. I haven't seen that. I'm, I'm not so, apart from Amacord, which I think is brilliant, I am not so keen on his letter we, output, but we, we uh, I've never a, seen that one, so I feel like I should go out and. We could do a Fellini retrospective episode. So I'd have guys, so much fun just talking about Fellini for hours. Yeah. So, guys, now tell us which films we should pick for our retrospective. And- Hayden and the Half and the Dolce Vita and Ivy Deloney and Satyricon and Am I the only one who finds Satyricon interesting, but like kind of monotonous? I've never seen so it. It's, it's incredibly self-indulgent and it doesn't bother me because the scale of the production design and oh, yeah, it's the whole nature of the mythos covered in it is just so interesting and intriguing to yeah, me. Yeah, that, that there is... It doesn't bother me. I mean, his films have always been self-indulgent, but sometimes... Satyricon much more so than yeah, I think any um, other. Well, from La Dolce Vita onwards, it's massive self-indulgence, but... Usually, I think there's more poetry to hold it down, whereas poetry is the wrong word, but there's more grounding. Like, I'm willing to indulge self-indulgence if I'm super entertained, but in Satyricon, it starts to feel like one note for me. I get the point he's making, and he keeps hammering on that note for a long time. And it's, by design, a kind of aimless, wandering film of digressions. But when it's like that without... I'm not demanding a narrative progression, but after a while it starts to feel like it's so mired in one zone that there's no thrust behind it. I think there's a fair gamut of archetypal narratives that he jumps between that isn't really static. I know- I'll watch it again. It's, it's been 10 years since I saw it. So maybe I need to give it another shot. I, I went to Rome once and I tried to find all the locations from his various films, including the Dolce Vita. And I went to my friend who had to wearing a black dress to the fountain at 2 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. We thought, hmm, no one's going to be here. We can do the Dolce Vita. And then and everyone was doing it. There were a hundred people there. What the hell? I mean, I, I, I probably underestimate how famous the location is. Obviously the Terry Fountain <laughs> is the location, but. And also uh, everyone had the same thought of no one will be here. It's 2 a.m. I tried. And yeah, you can't climb in the fountain. Big no-no apparently. Yeah. Police are very strict. 
Um, so things are happening around town. One thing is the French Film Festival, which screens till next week at Pal Cinemas. We're going to talk about a few of those films in a moment. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is screening online until August 2nd. I did an interview with Josh Belafonte, the director and producer of The World's Best Film, which is screening there. That's up on Falcon Screen and Festivers. That's one worth checking out. The Taiwan Film Festival is screening online until tomorrow night. Static Vision are going into their 14th week of screenings, uh, especially with Alexander Hellenikolas. Remember when, like, two weeks ago, they were like, I guess we'll have a break? No. Yeah, liars. Good on them. Liars. (laughs) That's what you are. We don't trust you. Yeah, uh, Felix Hellenikolas Bateman, we think you're liars. And you should go check out this. But it's okay. You still put on great films. Static Vision, that's S-T-A-T-I-C-V-I-S-I-O-N. Uh, yeah, for the French Film Festival. That's happening. We've seen a few things. We covered Zombie Child in a previous week. I caught La Bella Poc at the media opening night, which was quite a nice digression about how you remember the past. Is it worth having as a memory or is it worth to what extent trying to relive it? A great meditation on the ideas of nostalgia, which was very sweet. I quite enjoyed that one. The concept looked intriguing to me from the trailer. Yeah, I saw Les Miserables earlier in the year because I was trying to go and hate watch it because I was sad that Portrait of a Lady was not France's pick. It's coming on stand guys portrait of a lady and fire hit stand very soon portrait of a lady by the way is a movie that jane campion directed yeah very different very <laughs> different yeah. anyway anyway so i was like i'm gonna probably go hate watch play mr rob because you know how could it pay portrait of a lady on fire to the post as france's official selection and no it's, I, I got team merit it's, it, it was interesting. decent it's more than decent yeah better or worse like, than crash <laughs> definitely way better if it weren't for my bias to... And then Best Picture when it crashed. Yeah, high praise. If it weren't for my bias towards Portrait of a Lady on Fire, then yeah, I would I would be more reasoned in my analysis. But I think I like it. it, it it's okay. Cool. Another, Not as bad as BPM. Another nice one is The Swallows of Kabul, which is screened at the Veterans and Persian Film Festivals, which is an animation um, set in Kabul in wartime. The story was quite straightforward, but the quality of the animation, uh, which evokes some of the great traditions of hand drawing, was very beautiful. And I liked it for that. If you are into animation, uh, I think it's one worth checking out. So that's the French Film Festival is happening. The other thing we want to talk about is the big film news of the week. And that is the death of Olivia de Havilland at 104 um she was born yeah july 1st 1916 she lived through a lot she was by my reckoning the last of the classic golden hollywood era she was the standout she was the one who can speak to this incredible time in history and she's now gone obviously throughout her 20s and the 30s she was very active in a lot of classic pictures including robin hood one of the films i used to watch quite a bit as a child and which has still maintained the mold for every robin hood film to come and she is my favorite main marion uh, she started a lot of films alongside errol flynn a fellow tasmanian of ours he's australian guys and she did the heiress a number of other features but she is most well known of course, for playing Melanie in Gone with the Wind, one of the most revered films of all. The film, which we'll address a little bit, was on the front page of Daily Telegraph a few weeks ago because of a controversy involving HBO Max. But turning to Olivia de Havilland, aside from her acting career, she had a very consequential role in the studio system because I think it was about 46 or so when the studio she was on the contract to said that, oh no, you owe us some extra years of servitude because she was contracted for so many years. But they said that there was times where she wasn't working because of holiday or whatnot and that she owed cumulatively and she said no that's unfair obviously everyone else was under this sort of contract or at least presumed to be she took him to court and she won and uh, it, it's weird to think that the studio system basically used a time and loo kind of thing to basically make actors work a certain number of hours which is 
if you were to apply that today, that would be insane. It would be insane. So it's set a year's static, the house length of your contract rather than a cumulative work, which how do you jump back to this day? I'm certainly most familiar with her from Gone with the Wind. Even in her final year, she was still propping up the news. She offered her views here and there, certainly on the miniseries that sought to portray her and Bay Davis's feud with Joan Crawford. I remember her, her discussing that in quite some detail a couple of years back. Well, what was that feud about? So Betty Davis and Joan Crawford famously had a ongoing Hollywood feud where they didn't like each other. I don't know to what extent it was just media tabloids or what it takes to prove. cat fight. Uh, what? Said in the real spirit of Hollywood tabloids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was trying to mimic the tabloids, saying, ooh, cat fight. So she was obviously around at the time and she was known, to, she was an acquaintance of theirs. Catherine Jones portrayed her in the TV series, portrayed Olivia de Havilland, not in a favorable light. And oh. Olivia de Havilland came out and said, okay, hold on a second. None of this is true. You could, I'm alive. You could have called me and asked me about this. And this counts as defamatory. So what are you doing? And I think Ryan Murphy at the time said, oh, but like, we just didn't really want to bother her. But hey, like she obviously was willing to set the record straight. So she's been... Oh, I didn't know that Katarina Jones was involved. She played Betty Davis? Is, is that no, correct? she played Olivia de Havilland. Wow. I can't remember who played Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Okay. And she was obviously also the sister of Joan Fontaine, lesser known Hollywood fact. Yeah, interesting. I'm a huge Katarina Jones fan. So I, I, I should, should have known that, but I didn't. But thank you for increasing my general knowledge. With Olivia de Havilland, my favorite, very fond memories of her were from Gone with the Wind. She played Melanie Wilkes and I, I adore the book more than I do the film. Um, I actually have a first edition downstairs and very treasured little copy. Wow. That yeah. must be uh, worth something. Just found it. I found it and it's like... This you found just, it? I, I found it in the bookstore at the back of... Uh, sure. Uh, I found what it in country? the country? Uh, in the Blue Mountains. Wow. Okay. Yeah. First edition... Bottom level of bookstore, the like back, second hand. Published in the US? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. So guys, you know whose house to raid. If I was about to say that. Please don't raid Glenn's house. Please, please. I like my first edition of Gone with the Wind. In the- eBay, are you, are you watching? <laughs> Yeah, please don't. I, I live. I live in the Blue Mountains. Yeah, so that's, that's you, you should go look there for my house. Um, so she like, in the book, Melanie is really the, the soul of it, and she brought this warmth to the character, which pervaded the entire feature. And the, obviously, the central characters are ones who are quite cynical and ones you, in many respects, supposed to dislike. But Melanie was the kindness that pervaded *Gone with the Wind*, and she had such a, as I said, warm, heartwarming, glowing qualities to her, where she carried off. And without that, Gone with the Wind is such a difficult watch. It's a difficult read. And as has been discussed broadly in the press, and I think we'll go and discuss in a minute, there are incredibly problematic elements to it, but there is a soul to it that was very much, if not wholly, her. And that, I think, is one of the reasons that the film has maintained its popularity and resonance decades, decades later. It's still as easy to watch. I know it's four hours, but it just flies through even today. Good reason. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, it doesn't feel like four hours. It didn't feel like four hours when I first saw it as a kid either. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so I can't offer much commentary here. Today, because of this episode, so look I, uh, at yeah, I didn't dedication. have time to. I didn't have four hours. Sorry, I should. <laughs> I, I wish no, I had I, though. Be I, a I, good I, one to discuss. I speed watched it to be honest. So fair, to be fair, fair. fair please don't, yeah, we appreciate you watching it for the episode, but as a general dear listener, please do not speed watch films. Yeah, avoid it. Um, I love her like running towards Ashley at the beginning of one particular key sequence. Just the affection she has for Scarlet, even though she knows what Scarlet's done, and particularly to her, it's an element of forgiveness 
and kindness I mean, not many characters would have but and it's not something you can necessarily believe in so like why would someone be this faith faithful to someone so slavish but but she, she pulled that off because she, as she tapped into what was a elemental human kindness which she made believable in the context of the film and was necessary to propel and further the narrative the film is uh, very judgmental towards its characters except Melanie's arc. And I think that is what really helps you empathize with the other people because she's the moral compass and she's almost also the sort of mushy compass as well of the film. So if there is a way for you to empathize, because otherwise it becomes really hard for you to empathize with anyone. And it, it became really apparent to me in the rewatch and I'm like, oh, why do I hate all of these people so much? Well, they were slave owners for one. <laughs> I know, I know. But that's true. A lot of that is very obvious. Including uh, Melanie's character, whose family owns slaves, yeah, you must acknowledge. Yeah, the politics of the film, that's so obvious. So yeah, that's not held up pretty well. But South will rise again bullshit. <laughs> it, it didn't hold up well a long time ago, but it's, yeah. It's, it's... But, 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 but still, it, it was interesting to see that despite all that, despite the political elements, the characters themselves didn't have much redeeming qualities for you to really see where your empathies as a viewer should lie. And Including Melanie Ashley. Had, it's yeah. much more evident in the book that he's not as good a person as appears. In the film, they make him much more angelic and until, I think, near the end, whereas in the book, he's a much more nuanced character. And one of the things the film was missing to a great extent. So it's largely to Olivia and Melanie's portrayal that I was able to sort of navigate the film in a rewatch. So actually, that's, that's a big kudos to her performance because otherwise, every, every time she was on screen, I felt like, okay, there is some sensibility to the whole kind of chaotic fatalism that I'm seeing on screen, which <laughs> beyond a point, I was just like, why am I subjecting myself to this misery? But, you know, when she was on screen, I was like, okay, cool. There is a point to this, which is nice. How do we feel about the recent HBO Max controversy involving Gone with the Wind? Okay, so to give everyone a bit of context, and we're going to be going into this in more detail on the podcast, HBO Max in America, in the context of Black Lives Matter and like movements and following a lot of protests over the years surrounding Gone with the Wind, without warning, pulled Gone with the Wind from their service. To be clear, it was just from HBO Max. It had no equivalent effect on any streaming services in Australia where Gone with the Wind was at the time still very much available and said that we're going to put the film back on with education resources or a video or something to give some context about the problematic elements of the film. They have since done that. This caused a big hub around the world, including the front page of Daily Telegraph, which talks about how Gone with the Wind has been taken. I think this happened in the same day. The Faulty Towers episode was removed. The um, Don't Mention the War episode. I think it's subsequently moved back on. Uh, my broad view on this is I don't have a problem with material being appended to movies. I don't have a problem with studios or anyone else adding essays or thoughts or perspectives that's fine it's similar to what we discussed in previous weeks regards Sydney Film Festival I certainly don't think film should be edited and that wasn't what was done here I do think HBO Max erred by taking it off the streaming service they could have put something up even if it's in limited form um, some contextual material in limited form immediately and added more but to take it off um, I think it diverges this from the importance of discussion because people will just seek it out absent this and it will make it a much bigger deal it does. It's like HBO to Max be. is censoring this classic film. The headlines write themselves. Yeah, they didn't need to. The problem is the world we're living in mostly is about perception rather than what actually happened. So I think studios or any action is now scrutinized so closely that, you know, and headlines are almost misleading in every sense of the word. Even what happened with Sydney Film Festival didn't really capture the entirety and the nuance and the correct timeline of events which needed to be established 
for us to get the full details of the facts. So, you know, it's, it's obvious that what HBO Max just needs to be done or, you know, what happened, you know, it's, it's all messy. So to be clear, we're talking about the mukbang controversy, which we've covered in previous episodes of Film Fight Club. Where I stand with this is, yes, censorship is definitely not okay. But at the same time, I'm not entirely sure what educational resources are going to add to the thing in terms of experience of the film. You can seek them out if you need, and they exist in the wider discourse, and that's fine. But to add them to basically the film itself in terms of your experience of watching the film after as an additional item, it's different if it's the collector's or a home video edition, you know, where you have other commentaries and stuff which is included as part of the actual edition. But for a streaming service, I don't know what purpose or value does it serve. And just, it feels like a knee-jerk reaction to first take it down and I then think, realizing that that's going to be taken in that negative light, which it was, and then put it back up again. To be clear, just, it wasn't uh, censored for several reasons. Number one, they're a private company who can choose to exhibit their own material, not but number two. They didn't say we're going to take down permanently. They didn't say we're going to change it. They just said we're going to put it up with some extra info you can read. I think it was poorly handled. I think they should have just left it up and add what they could have added more later. To take it down draws attention to it in an unnecessary way. It means that the debate is not about the issues of gone for the wind. The debate becomes wrongly about censorship and it just means people can access the film, otherwise seek it out absent context, which I think is important. I agree. Basically, it was a non-issue that became an issue for no reason. The thing about the feeling that they should put up some commentary before it, I actually understand it and I agree with it, I would say, overall, because the problem is that if you just present the film without context, especially in the context of the discourse we're having today, people can view it as an endorsement. Like, see Gone with the Wind and 600,000, whatever it is, other great movies on HBO Max. Like, it's a selling point for our service. I, I think in an ideal world, everyone would be media literate enough. Yeah, but that's enough the thing, to say right? that the company doesn't necessarily endorse everything that they have on their service when they're presenting a film that's like 90 years old. But even then, I, I feel like that's contributing to basically making us dumb as viewers because, yes, yes, a lot of people may not have that media literacy, but isn't that part of engaging with any kind of media text? It should be. Work, that you do the work, essentially to understand the context in the right context, rather yeah. than applying your own lens from where you're coming from. I think ultimately you're right. Um, I think as a business decision, it makes sense given the current context. But I think the reality is also that we live in a world where there are people who want to reestablish the Confederacy. You know, I understand yeah, I the desire to make it clear that by putting this film up, we are not trying to contribute to the romanticization of the slave era. Yeah. To be clear on we talked referred earlier to the problematic elements of the wind to elaborate a little bit more um the film shows people who own slaves in the south as largely benevolent figures obviously this is not true to life also it showed a situation where people who were slaves were by and large oh yeah we're kind of happy with our situation this seems okay obviously this was not the case separate to that and this is discussed quite a lot but there's horrific sexual assault in this movie and then subsequent to that the character who's assaulted is shown just to be happy and carefree and that's definitely far from okay and this is also an element that should be addressed in any material that is appended to the film i'd say further that though there is important context as regards gone with the wind and a lot of it is a little recent discussion has centered on the role of hannah mcdaniel hannah mcdaniel obviously uh, won the best supporting actress was the first african-american woman to win an academy award uh, which is in itself is viewed as a historic event when asked about obviously there was at the time 
there was some protest among the African-American community or her taking on the wrong mile of the wind. Her response was, I could be earning significantly less in a menial role, or I could be doing this and earning money for me and my family, and I choose to do this. And certainly I'm not going to contradict her account. I'm, I, I raise this to say that the situation is complex and there are many dimensions to it. And I think there are huge problems with the way the film treats Sarah's history, but I think we can learn a lot from contextual material. And also as a text to show, these were the attitudes that were prevalent at the time of the war. And here's, we're given contextual reading and more information how these were wrong. God of the Wind is a testament to those that, that this terrible era of history and what we can learn from it. So the sort of thing doesn't ever happen again. Going back a bit, you just reminded me of something when you were saying, talking about there being a terrible sexual assault and then it's sort of depicted like that's not such a big thing. This is a big right-wing talking point, but when does it end? You know, once you start picking on films for these kinds of, I agree, uh, in in some ways, socially harmful depictions, you know, in in the impact they have. I think you can pick up a lot of films throughout history for representing things in in ways that maybe weren't so educated about the issues, or downright ignorant or stupid, but where do we stop and where do we draw the line on that? I was shocked when I watched Once Upon a Time in America a couple of years back. Like most of Sergio Leone's movies, it's super misogynist from start to finish, by the way. But, oh yeah, Noodles was not a good guy, but he was betrayed as having a redemptive arc. No, you don't deserve one. You're a piece of shit. That's, that's exactly right. But in that film, there's a scene during a bank robbery where I think you, it's kind of entering territory of like, oh, she was raped, but it's okay because she liked it. And then later on, it's played as a gag. It's like, oh, I can. She gets with some guy because she liked it, and she can identify him by his penis, but not his face because she had the bag covered over her head. And this, the whole thing just felt all kinds of gross. <laughs> you know, like, should should you put a disclaimer before Once Upon a Time in America? Should you put a disclaimer before Sunrise? Right, Sunrise is my favorite silent film, but it, it shows a guy who's at the point where he would murder his wife and then argues that it's a good thing that she forgives him and they go and they get to be happily ever after and it's all the fault of this other wench for tempting him and putting these bad thoughts in his mind like no actually she needs to get far away from him right but the film is incredibly well made and tries to sell you on this idea or at least asks you to just go along with it should you put a disclaimer before all these classic films that have morally suspect elements some a disclaimer and some an appropriate rating some don't deserve to be seen by um or shouldn't be seen by audiences under a certain age absolutely not and count once put a time in america and gone with the wind in that example Mm. granted i did see it when i first for the first time when i was under 18. But I think the, the broader point I was just trying to make is that once we start going down this territory, like there's a lot of films throughout history. Oh, um, there's a lot. You know, and it's basically a revisionist take on a lot of... Yeah. It's not a revisionist even, take, it's adding to the conversation. I don't have a problem with reading a bunch of essays on Gone with the Wind and watching a bunch of YouTube I, I know, But if you but, go back but, to but, like but, but if, um, Greek mythology, my, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that all through history that there's all yeah. kinds of by, by our current standards messed up stuff in fiction. There is there's there's a difference in discourse. Gone with the wind. You know that's the thing. There's a difference in discourse here, right? If I if I watch a film and then I seek out discourse to basically substantiate my experience of what I've seen, that's a different thing. But if I actually have a disclaimer before I've seen a film, it feels like it's automatically curling my perspective of how I should see it, regardless of what's coming on screen afterwards. 
I feel like I should be able to make up my mind from the text itself and then seek out commentary as to like, oh, I felt uncomfortable. I, feel, I felt this was wrong. Is there something that helps substantiate my view out there in discourse? And there, yeah, that's fine. I, but if I basically have a disclaimer telling me that this is how I should feel before I've even seen the film, I feel that's a bit... I don't think disclaimers necessarily tell you how you should feel. They, they forewarn you of elements regarding a text. And I'll give you an example. Um, I'm an avid Tintin fan. I have all these books and I have a lot of books about Perget and the history of Tintin. A lot of them, I have very mixed views on this. A lot of them have uh, very problematic depictions of certain characters and characters of certain races, which have been edited and changed by different animators over time. There's yep. one, however, the second novel, Tintin in the Congo, which is egregious and awful in similar regards to uh, matters we've discussed earlier in this podcast. And the editors, modern editors have said, we, we, this is very bad. It's pervasive throughout the text. We, we decided not to change that. However, give a disclaimer that this, we believe this was reflective of the attitudes of the time. This is wrong. Here's some extra reading and here's the text. And then subsequent to that, as I did, I sought out other material on that text. I think that's the appropriate course of action for a lot of films and a lot of things that people should be doing. But I don't think disclaimers are necessarily bad in that regard. But I do think that if they're too pointed, they subvert what should be the function of explanatory memoranda or additional material that people could seek out before, during or after they've watched or read a text or a film. I think that's a pretty nuanced take. Um, and what you described with the Tintin example is actually similar to what Warner Brothers have done in the past with their Looney Tunes shots. On the Looney Tunes anthology uh, yeah, yeah. videos, there are messages before shorts featuring racial stereotypes saying that these reflect the standards of the time. And we've decided, even we don't agree with the depictions here, but we've decided to present as is without editing because we believe in preserving what was there and we believe that deleting it from the archives would be akin to pretending that these kind of attitudes never existed. Well then the thing that usually comes up at this point in the discussion is a film I haven't seen because I certainly don't have access to it, which is Song of the South. Song of the South. I was thinking about it as soon as you proposed this subject for discussion, actually. The Disney film, I, apparently it's very, very bad in terms of its depictions. I wonder to what extent Disney are doing a disservice to the debate by not making it available with an explanatory memoranda. Certainly Disney have made a lot of films or texts like this over the past, well, it's, it's a, aren't great and should it be out there for discussion. Big, but this film is a big part of history, right? Like who doesn't know the song, Zippity Doodah? This song uh, created the iconography for the Splash Mountain ride at Disneyland. That's now being rethemed into a Princess and the Frog ride, but until recently it was all Song of the South themed. It's just strange to me that there's no official release of the film. I, I get it in the case of Disney, though. It's different from Warner Brothers because Disney is very much about this is appropriate for your kids. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to raise your kids on racism, right? <laughs> but uh, I think um, in the case of Song of the South, I haven't seen it. I'm not an expert on what it contains, but I think it's in that kind of like benevolent racism. I'm making quotation marks as I say that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's in Just the place like of the like... British. They built the railroad, you know, at least fine. You know, why can't you Indians be happy? Right, right. I think the thing with Song <laughs> of the South is that it probably contains a bunch of charming animated short stories, right? But it's the framing device is like the happy slave. He loves his life and he enjoys work and yeah, it like I know. It's bad. <laughs> I'm not I'm not in any way saying it's good. It's definitely bad. It's definitely not fit it to be just and, presented and, as like here's this Disney classic. But I wonder if is it that we don't live 
in a nuanced enough world for there to be any access to this film that's contextualized? Or am I just being a snob and underestimating people's intelligence to suggest that? That's the thing. I, I would want to believe it's the latter, but I think it's the former. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think my good judgment or maybe my naivety is the fact that, you know, I would trust people's judgment and be like, of course, people are smart enough to figure out, you know, that this is not how things are supposed to be. And this is basically applying a hundred year old standard, which doesn't apply today. But clearly, given the world that we live in and the examples we've seen, it's that people aren't that smart. And that is, I'm still... I think you have to trust people to make... I think if people want to learn about things, everyone does. Give them access to the resources and they will. And certainly I would want to learn more about a lot. I remember when I was a kid watching films that I would watch now and not noticing things that are incredibly problematic and not realizing the extent to which they're very terrible. Um, certainly, I think a lot of people would grow up watching a film like The Jazz Singer and not knowing the uh, terrible contextual history of blackface. And I'd certainly be perfectly comfortable and very happy with and would absolutely support the idea that any uh, screening or publicly available or digitally available version of that could be appended by, say, uh, videos of academics talking about here's the history of this uh, form and why it is bad. At that time, it was very rare to see a black person in a film and invariably they're not being a villain or mm-hmm. in a, uh, what's the, what's, was it, it's not intolerance. Um, yeah, intolerance. Uh, playing, yeah. Intolerance, a film that was made by D.W. Griffith, partly to try to clear his conscience after <laughs> making Birth of a Nation. Because he, uh, I think, yes, I was thinking, yes. He doesn't touch on intolerance against black people in America. He just made a film about, oh, look at how intolerance is bad throughout history. Yeah, sorry, I meant, yeah, I meant to reference Birth of a Nation. Yes, intolerance is also relevant to this example. Yeah, he, uh, he made intolerance off. There was a lot of criticism of Birth of the Nation at the time, despite it being a massive popular success. There, there were voices speaking out and saying, hold on, this isn't okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, everyone has a lot of relearning to do, and we still need to figure out what's the best way to do it. I think at least I'm thankful that we're having these conversations because it, it's better than shutting them out. Because uh, I think we are exceptions to the rule that we can have these conversations quite openly. But, For geniuses. <laughs> but also, we, I know I'm very conscious of the fact that we live in a world where people have kind of already made up their minds. The fact that these conversations that should be had aren't had as regularly and as often and with such civility as we're having on, on the radio show. We're having a chat. We're not even getting all worked up about it. But a lot of people just- Did you say worked up? I had worked up. I had worked up. But look, if, if, you, if you disagree with us on Marvel, when you think it's a film that um, shouldn't be watched or that is inherently problematic or irreversibly so, let us know. Yeah. Or other examples we've mentioned tonight. But I think it's worth watching and in its context- and actually, I think it's worth reading the book, I would say, before watching the film. But yeah. See everything, educate yourself, understand the context. Don't apply your own lens to everything. Basically, just the world doesn't revolve around you. Just figure it out. It's simple. Yeah. And Olivia de Havilland, 104. She would have, actually, you, you know, I was really hoping when the whole thing happened with HBO Max, I was wondering, would she come out and say something? It's like, hi, hi, I was in the movie. And uh, here's what I think of this. Was she to be the last person involved in the film still alive? Well, okay, how old was she at the time? She was in her late 20s? Yeah, it's very possible. No, sorry, late yeah. 20s, early 20s, God. It's very um, possible she'd be the only person involved in the film still alive. Maybe yeah, some... Uh, maybe some... some grip. Uh, yeah, maybe like a, a junior person in the crew. Yeah. 
Well, for what it's worth, the last person involved in the Wizard of Oz, at least the last person to play one of the Munchkins, passed away quite recently. So right. the same year. Uh, I think this era of Hollywood. How many how many people worked in the old studio system? Who a still- lot. And a lot of when I said so that is what I mean. When we talk about some group of, you know, junior staff, these people just didn't get a credit. Yeah. The record of whether they actually worked on the film is probably lost. And God Wind had like what, twenty directors, so yeah it was there the, three. the there three. archetypical producer driven film oh god <laughs> it's it was such a phenomenon at the time like the mitchell novel was the biggest thing it was like the da vinci code when it came out mm. and then the film was oh my god yeah, it, it was it was that it actually was more popular. it was that kind of massive social phenomenon yeah everyone read it everyone was talking about it. the film was the biggest film it was a huge like, um talent quest essentially throughout america to find scarlett o'hara Vivian because Lee. like everyone knew and loved the character already. She was such ideal casting. I mean, she wasn't like she was described in the book, but she was ideal casting. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Clark Gable, very, he had a very I, distinct voice. Skull, my pet. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> but I don't know why I had... Pushing, I, I, I just had... <laughs> my my just Sean had Connery and Clark Gable a little bit indistinguishable, but... They were, it was a bit Sean, Sean Connery. Is it so hard to do a Clark Gable? You have to say, to, for the, to nail the Sean, it's, it's only 50% the accent. Sean Connery is actually about just that low monotone. Yeah. What? <laughs> like, Sean? Parchment the garage. Shocking. Positively <laughs> shocking. Right. Clark Gable had this um, upward inflection. I just, it's very hard to do. Positively hmm. shocking. Yeah, Clark Gable was amazing. Uh, And actually, the actor who played Ashley Wilkes had an incredible career. He was also a war hero. Fleming obviously hadn't made many major films. And also... It's visually stunning, though. Gone with the Wind has some absolutely incredible, highly storyboarded sequences. Like the the fire? Oh, my God. Of collapsing the building. The sequence where it pans out that the Simpsons parried in the trampoline sequence where there's just hundreds of bodies um mm. watching the simpsons and i watching now with the wind for the first time i was like simpsons 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 you know brad bird actually brought a lot of those film references to the classic simpsons that was one of his big influences over the show right yeah yeah and so many famous still the most probably iconic line in the history of cinema i don't think there's ever been so much anticipation of a film ever dark knight was not as big as gone with the wind guys otherwise no yeah gone with the wind was is possibly the biggest film of all time Sound of Music would be up there as well, and E.T. and Star Wars. Star Wars, yeah. I'm not sure there's anything else no, on that level. Okay, apparently, I'm Wizard just looking this up. Wizard of Oz, yeah. I'm just looking this yeah, up. Not nearly as good. The only surviving credited cast member from the film still alive is Mickey Coon, who played Melanie's son, Bo. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Okay. That's, good. That's a good piece of trivia. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Good to after, know. This is after, as of the death of Olivia de Havilland. So, yeah. How old is he? Uh, Ninety, I'm guessing. Must have been, yeah, very young. Yeah, I don't I'm... know how old, but Mickey Coon. Okay, let me let me see. He's eighty-seven, as of yeah. Good for you, mate. Good for him. Good for you. God with the wind. It's rapturous. It does go along at a very strong pace, and a lot of it is the charisma of Gable and Lee. Oh, apparently he was only a child actor. He never did anything as an actual actor. Actor. 
as an actual actor. Well, he was an actual an child actor. actor. Yeah, well, yeah. Sorry, as an adult actor, that's what I meant. Like, he peaked At least he didn't like become 10, an actual so. cannibal after being a child actor, like Shia LaBeouf. Like, he peaked yeah. at a very young age, fair enough. <laughs> um, well, His last credited appearance is in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, so yeah. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> well, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, that kid from Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Behold, I was a guy with the wind. Like I was, I was the son of one of the four major characters. Yeah, like, I was back in the day. I was the kid. You were. You and Shirley were like bees yeah. knees. I'm talking about Shirley Temple. She was big. For those playing at home. <laughs> oh, Shirley Temple. Oh, the studio era. Well, let us know what you want us to fight about. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if we could become people who like yearn for all the terrible aspects of the studio era? Like we can become the film version of like the, oh, but the South wasn't so bad. And we can like talk about like how great it was Shirley Temple and like, <laughs> you know, um, Judy Garland and stuff and just not mention the horrible exploitation behind the scenes. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard. No, Sunset Boulevard does shine a bit. Sunset Boulevard shone a light on it to some extent. The dark undercurrents. Yeah. yeah. No, but it was a glorious time a wonderful yeah, time exactly the golden that's an age of hollywood that's that's the kind of the thing that rubs me the wrong way i mean this breed's dying out but a lot of the classic film enthusiasts who talk about it in that way not just glossing over the exploitation but it's also like a lot of the films weren't that good you know it's more most, it's most more, of them were bad that's and what i was going to say not just a lot out. but in general the films weren't that good it's just like i i'm not a fan of nostalgia just for nostalgia's sake like Elvis made their bad films. I love all those, but a lot oh, of bad were just no, but they're, they're, they're fun bad. You know, I watched Late at Night because it popped on TV, and I thought, oh man, I have to watch this. Uh, I think it's called Spin Out. Have you seen that? No. It's an Elvis movie where his, his character just wants to play in my band and race automobiles. Like he's. Uh, I want to say for the record that Chris's Elvis impression is much better than my Clark Gable impression. He well, thank you, but he's a uh, he. <laughs> thank you very much. But he's driving around America, <laughs> like he's he's a professional racer, but he's also like playing in a band that he's going around touring. And there's a woman pursuing him because she's a journalist, and she realizes that he represents the archetypical manly American man. He's always just like in a band. We're doing something else. Like he's running his, his lead band for a club owner. Club owner's like, go out and make sure my girlfriend doesn't get with any of those, you know, beach boys. She's like, oh yeah. And then he obviously falls in love with her and plays in a band. Um, he's working as the fitness uh, at a fitness camp. He's playing in a band. There's one where he breaks into the prison where it's all like 22 year old girls in the prison. And he's like, I'm looking for Daisy. And one of the women is like, I'll be your Daisy. And it's just the whole, oh, Kissing Cousins, when he breaks into Kitty Hawk Mountain, where everyone who lives there is his distant cousin, but not too distant for him as the lyric goes, and they're all 22, and look exact, and, and it's, oh, it's, it's, it's so weird. Oopsie daisy. These movies were insane. Oh, so that's Elvis. We can talk about Elvis movies in another week. He was sick of doing them by the end. He was just like, please, no more movies. Like, he was just contracted to do all these terrible films. They basically went to him and said, look, we've got this set available for a few weeks, so you can make a film out of these sets. And they just another Elvis movie. Elvis. Here it comes. You didn't ask for it, but here it is. Remember when they made films in like three weeks? Sometimes it still happens today. Some indie film shoots, people really rehearse it. They know what they're doing. They get in, get it done, get out. You can film an episode of TV in a week. That's 45 minutes. Yeah. Get it? I think um, sometimes indie films work on these TV-like schedules to get it done, to just keep the budget down. So pick a fight with us. 
can be on Please Elvis do. or anything else. You can find us on social media at twitter.com slash filmfightclubau or facebook.com slash filmfightclub. We're way slacker updating these pages than we should be. But you can send us a message and we promise we will read it. Send us uh, what you wanted to fight about. We'll talk next week. Have a wonderful yeah. day whenever you're listening. Enjoy movie. A wonderful life. Now, it's a wonderful life. Now, that was a film. It was a movie. I hope there's no storied studio history behind that one. Oh, I'm sure there is. There's, there's always some darkness behind every beautiful, innocent page. Damn it, George Bailey. God. <laughs> this has been Glenn Fowles and Chris Evans of Rock Nehru. Stay safe, enjoy movies, and have a good night. <laughs>